You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A rejection of mainstream culture and the quest for a different existence. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small, and no topic is too big, because this is For the Love of History. Welcome, 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 my friend. It has been too long. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to what we are calling Season 2 of For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Welcome to a new release schedule. This is the first episode in 2022 and the first episode of our new season format, which is really exciting and I cannot think of a better topic than this to ring in all of these new things. We've talked about Maori tattoos, Scythian tattoos, Ainu tattoos, Hawaiian tattoos, and Japanese tattoos, and now, today, We are talking about the history of American traditional tattoos. I was incredibly lucky to be able to finally go back home for the holidays after two years because of this global panini. And let me tell you, when I wasn't happy crying or laughing or shoving my face full of text masks and my dad's beignets, I was at the tattoo shop that my brother works at and shout out to Icon Tattoo in Boise, Idaho. I love you guys so much. Boy, howdy, did I get some super duper mega inspiration while I was there. So I'm really excited to bring this episode to you, my friend, and I'd like to dedicate this episode to the wonderful people at Icon who keep my brother out of trouble. So grab your tattoos if you got them, and if you don't, get a Sharpie, make your own, and let's get to it. There are a ton of different styles of tattoos now in the States. You got tribal, black and gray, realism, trash polka, Japanese, portrait, lettering, watercolor, neo-traditional, and so many more. I could go on and on. But our focus today is on American traditional tattoos, how the heck they got to the States in the first place, and how they developed. So how the heck did they get here? Much of mainstream history Well, Talia, Captain Cook and his dudes spread the concept of tattooing to the Western world during their various escapades. But tattoo historian Anna Felicity Friedman has proved that theory wrong. After years of research, Anna found writings predating that of old Cookie Boy and his crew. Anne states, A look at texts from before the mid-18th century demonstrates that many authors, explorers, scientists, etc. were all familiar with the practice of permanently marking the body with a substance 
embedded underneath the skin. And we totally have documentation of, the ta of these tattoos in one form of four gorgeous portraits entitled The Four Indian Kings. These series of four paintings are the portraits of three members of the Mohawk tribe and one Makan tribesman before they traveled to New York, to England, to meet Queen Anne, which is super cool. So Western peeps had been privy to the tattoo game for quite some time. And I, I hear you, TK. So Western people knew about tattoos and all that jazz, but when did it all start in the States? Excellent question, my dear friend. Coming in hot with the direct questions in 2022, I like it. Well, New York City is considered the birthplace of modern tattoos in America because it's where the first professional tattoo artist, Martin Hildenbrandt, set up shop in the mid-19th century to do what? Tattoo Civil War soldiers for identification purposes. This was, of course, done with the good old stick-and-poke method because the first electric rotary tattoo machine wouldn't be invented until 1891, which is way earlier than I thought. We had electric tattoo machines before we had sliced bread and social security numbers and like the freaking post office. How bananas is that? Super bananas. And you know what? The design was inspired by Thomas Edison's electric pen. So thanks, Thomas. But why was New York the place where it all started? Another excellent question. Other than the Civil War tattoos, New York was basically trying to keep up with the Kardashians of the time, aka the British royals who were getting tatted up. New York's high society decided to get tattoos after hearing that Britain's Prince of Wales, later King Edward VII, sorry, <laughs> had gotten a tattoo during an 1862 trip to Jerusalem. And his sons, Prince Albert and Prince George, future King George V, got dragons in Japan. Although the majority of people in the UK getting tattoos were men, the ladies of the US were the ones who were picking up the trend and getting the most tattoos. These women, of course, would never be caught dead in an establishment like a tattoo parlor, so the majority of tattoo artists would make house calls for them. Ads often said that the body art cost as much as a fine dress, but not as much as fine jewelry. And one of my favorite little tidbits is that the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's mother, Lady Randolph Churchill, had a snake tattoo on her wrist that could be hidden by bracelets. It's amazing. I love that story. And the New York World reports the Historical Society placed the percentage of fashionable New York ladies who were inked at the turn of the century around three quarters. Three quarters of New York City's fashionable ladies were tattooed, albeit secretly, like they could hide it easily, but that's a huge number of tattooed ladies. And the most trendy designs of the time included butterflies, flowers, and, of course, dragons. Because who doesn't love a dragon? I love a dragon. But at the time, there was no such thing as a style of tattooing. There were trendy things like butterflies and flowers and dragons, but no particular style. 
It was just tattooing. You couldn't walk up to a shop and be like, give me a watercolor potato on my left butt cheek, nay nay. They were set things that people could get, that artists would do. Around about the 1900s, the few tattoo artists that were around would mail each other flash, flash designs. Flash is basically a design template a customer can choose from. There's still flash today, but in the early 1900s, the flash doubled as a stencil as well. The artist would carve a simple design on a sheet of acetate, which is like a thick, clearish plastic. I'll put pictures up on Instagram so that you can see. They would rub lead into the carved lines, brush it off a little bit, and then stick the acetate flash onto their client's body leaving an outline. But here's the thing, they had one shot, one opportunity to seize everything they ever wanted. <laughs> Sorry, I had a Eminem blackout. Anyways, they had one chance to get these lines tattooed because if they wiped the design once, it would be totally gone. These pieces of flash were really the only designs that were available for clients to get tattoos. Artists would mail these flash pieces back and forth to each other or hand them over because the post office didn't exist yet. But in 1905, a man named Lou Alberts began selling the first commercial tattoo flash sheets. <laughs> and this was a revelation in the emerging tattoo industry. People were hooked. Designs were more readily available. And the more ready readily available the designs were, the more people that could be tattooed, and thus the more people that wanted tattoo. Supply and demand, you understand. And the more flash that was passed back and forth between artists, the more development that there was, and the more designs that would become available. In 1933, a guy named Albert Perry wrote the book Tattoo, Secrets of a Strange Art which helped capture what was going on in the industry at the time. The New York Historical Society states that according to Albert Perry's book, tattooists of the time were so inundated with request that it was difficult for them to keep up with the demand for the new designs. But the exchange of flash during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which were largely distributed with other supplies through the mail, helped artists keep up with growing marketplace demand. These flash sheets preserved pieces that artists had been tattooing for decades, which included religious iconography, symbols of courage and strength, beautiful pinup girls, and more. Tattooing went on like this for a few decades until a butterfly effect of epic proportions brought about the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the evolution of American tattooing. We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Finding Home Designs. Candles and serial killers? Finding Home Designs is a small business that creates gorgeous serial killer-themed candles that every true crime fan would die for. Pun 100% intended. You can choose from scents like Love Spell for Ted Bundy, who fell in love with a witness, or Caramel Espresso for Eileen Wernos, a tribute to her last meal. Each label features the serial killer front and center. 
But for those who are more serial killer junkies on the DL, Finding Home Designs offers a more discreet label as well. And for lovers of the dark and the macabre, this collection also features a body candle that bleeds as it melts. What more could a true crime lover ask for? For more information, head over to Finding Home Designs website and Instagram. Link is in the show notes. Once again, thank you Finding Home Designs for sponsoring this episode. If New York City was tattooing's birthplace, Honolulu was where American tattoo art experienced its renaissance. And I feel your question coming through the airwaves, my friend. How in the heck does the bombing of Pearl Harbor have anything to do with tattoos? And to that, dear one, I say literally everything in history has to do with each other. The world, and specifically its history, Uh, are just one big butterfly effect. (laughs) But that answer is super annoying and pretentious. Here's the real reason. Here's the real answer. After Pearl Harbor, the U.S. joined World War II, right? And a ton of U.S. soldiers and sailors and military, mostly dudes, just basically invaded Hawaii, which is a whole other bucket of messy historical fish. We're not going to talk about that today. But... Regardless, they came, and so did a man named Norman Collins, a.k.a. Sailor Jerry. Honolulu went from being a peaceful island to a one-stop shop for desperate soldiers to drink, partake in adult activities, and get a tattoo. Honolulu went from being a peaceful island to a one-stop shop for young sailors coming home on leave from the war wanting to blow off steam to drink, partake in adult activities, and get a tattoo. Shops catering to this trifecta set up in Honolulu's Chinatown. It was one street where you could get back from war, off the boat, get drunk AF, go next door for some adult activities, and then go next door to that and get tattooed. Rugged and rowdy as it may seem, it was the birthplace of the classic, beautiful American traditional art that we know and love today. But before we get too far into that, let's talk about what American traditional style tattooing is. Born partly out of necessity for speed and the lack of colors and tools available, American traditional tattoos were and are characterized by their clean black outlines, vivid colors, and minimal shading. They have thick lines and only come in the colors yellow, red, black, and then later purple, but we'll talk about that later. The standard images pre-Sailor Jerry were roses, ships, sparrows, swallows, anchors, military stuff, and like really ugly jaguars. Like, ugly. If you described a jaguar to a child who had never seen uh, a jaguar before, it's that bad. But they had to be banged out quickly. You know, we didn't have time for realism here, all right? It wasn't unusual for a tattoo artist in Hawaii during this time to tattoo 100 men in a single day. And they were drunk and rowdy and it was a banana sandwich up in there. And there was no going in to chat with the artist about what you wanted, no drawing up a sketch to show you how it would look or how it could be changed or tweaked. You walked in, you gave the artist 
$3, you picked a piece of flash on the wall, and you sat down and you shut up. P.S. And by the way, just because I think it's super cool, $3 in 1940 is equivalent to the purchasing power of about $59.74 today, which is so fascinating. So it was a pretty decent chunk of change that these sailors were just slapping down. And that's how it went for a long time, until Jerry got there. Now, Sailor Jerry is by no means the only notable artist for the first tattoo renaissance, but I would say he is the dude who solidified the style of American traditional tattooing. There are other super noteworthy artists like George Burchett, who started tattooing at the age of 12 and developed some of the first cosmetic tattoos like Permanent Foundation, there's also Bert Grimm, who some people consider the greatest arti tattoo artist of all time. So if you want to learn more about these other legendary artists, I will leave links in the show notes for you. But we're only talking about Jerry today. So, Jerry was born Norman Keith Collins on January 14th, 1911. As a kid, he hopped train cars and lived on the road by himself, picking up the art of tattooing from several notable tattoo artists of the time. But when he was 19, he joined the Navy, where he became fascinated with East Asian art, specifically Japanese art, which would play a huge part in his life later on. He did the Navy thing for a while, collecting tattoos and giving tattoos along the way, until he retired from the military life, moving to Hawaii in the 1930s. He bounced around different shops until he opened up his own in the red light district of Honolulu's Chinatown. He opened his shop up at 1033 Smith Street, and that is where it all happened. Tattoos in America up until this point were pretty much the same. Done in the same style of a single needle and a machine that hurt like a motherfucker, but Jerry was kind of an asshole and very competitive, which came in handy because he wanted to be the best tattooer ever. He didn't like the way the old machines ran and he didn't like the single needle situation, so he changed it, making innovation after innovation, creating different shading needles for his machine, making different needle groupings for different tattooing techniques, which I didn't know that was a thing. I had no idea that was a thing. But my brother, my little Bubby, he showed me all of his different needles that he uses for his tattooing. And it was very exciting to see them up close and personal. And they are surprisingly large. If you have a needle phobia, don't look at your tattoo when it's getting done. I'm sure you know this already, but just don't. Those needles can be really big sometimes. But I digress. <laughs> so back to Jer Bear. Jerry. All right. He created different shading needles for his machines, making different needle groupings for tattooing techniques, and he also invented a tattoo machine that packed in more ink for better pigmentation, and it hurt less. So thank you so much. There is a whole book about his tattoo machine inventions that I'll put in the show notes with really in-depth details and notes and patents that he made. It's incredible. I highly recommend taking a look at it. 
American traditional tattoos were very limited in their color palette because creating synthetic colors outside of red, yellow, black, and green was either impossible with the current technology or it was just too expensive to be worthwhile. And for some reason, purple was like the big color that everybody wanted. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's because it's a hard color to make naturally, even outside of the tattoo world. Like royalty wears purple and all that jazz. So maybe that was the fascination with purple. But everybody wanted it. And Jerry was a very competitive man. And he hated this other tattooer in Honolulu. And this other tattooer equally wanted purple. Well, not equally, because we'll just listen to the story. Jerry hated this guy. Jerry wanted to make purple and flaunt it in front of this poor other tattoo artist's face. So he went to a lab with the help of some science peeps and he created purple ink. He paid for the testing and all of the sciencey things that went along with creating a purple pigment. And then he tattooed this bright purple dragon on a dude and then paid said dude to go to his rival's shop and rub it in his face, which is hilarious and so, so spiteful and very mean. But now we have purple, which is great. <laughs> Yay. But other than being a competitive jerk, Jerry was also super into hygiene. And although it boggles my mind that all through history there have been hygiene activists, why, why do we need to be activists for hygiene, you guys? Jerry was one of them. The tattoo scene was dirty and superty duperty unhygienic. Single-use needles were not a thing. And tattoos would be wiped with the same dirty cloth over and over and over and over again on different customers. No washing in between. No gloves. No antiseptic of any kind. But Jerry really fought for sterilizing equipments and using single-use needles, as well as keeping a sterile and tidy shop, wearing gloves and washing everything. He was a highly regimented and serious guy, and he was very serious about aftercare of tattoos as well, because he wasn't about to spend a bunch of time making a tattoo and put his name on it for it to heal like <clears throat> poopy to poop poop. So once again, thanks to Jer Bear, we have better tattoo hygiene. And side note, if you don't give historical figures cute nicknames, you're doing history wrong, my friend. You're doing history wrong. But I digress. The style of American traditional tattooing had not quite solidified yet in the early 1940s, but Jerry was incredibly interested in Japanese art. And because he wanted to be better than everyone else, he became one of the first Westerners to learn from the great Japanese tattoo masters. He began writing letters back and forth with the Hori, a group of Japanese tattoo masters. And this was right at the end of World War II, which is bananas. An, an American and Japanese communicating like this during a time of like a super war, one of the two world wars, absolutely crazy. 
one Japanese master even came to visit him in Hawaii to teach him in person. And he built on the traditional Japanese techniques that he learned and combined them with combined, that's not a word, combined, combound, combined. <laughs> he combined them with his bold American style and he mastered those techniques. He added colors and he added tools and he refined his style into what we know today as American traditional tattoos. He mixed east and west. He mixed delicate geisha woodblock printings with thick, bold, American traditional style tattoo lines. He mixed gorgeous Japanese water motifs and cloud motifs and put them into American traditional tattooing. It's one of the best examples of when East meets West in art that I think is out there. And it, to me, it's so amazing that it's created on the canvas of a human body. And it's so impermanent. Skin doesn't last forever. But it's such a beautiful art form. And I just love that. Sailor Jerry would unfortunately pass away on June 12th, 1973. But his impact on American traditional tattoos will never fade. You can't really have American traditional tattoo conversations without Sailor Jerry in the same conversation. It's just not possible. Since the 1960s, tattooing in America has gone through many revolutions with new styles and techniques and different demographics of tattooed folks popping up all the time. With over 145 million Americans in the U.S. having one or more tattoos, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. And in the immortal words of SailorJerry.com, no matter how much tattooing has evolved, the basics haven't changed. It hurts and it doesn't go away. It still takes a certain amount of guts to mark yourself for the rest of your life, which is exactly how it ought to be. We have come to our final thought, my dear friend, and I almost want to do a whole episode on this, but a final thought will have to suffice for now, dear one. So at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, a woman named Maud Wagner struck a deal with a tattoo artist. She would go on a date with him if he taught her how to tattoo. And he totally did. And they totally got married. And she totally became America's first woman tattoo artist. She has a fascinating story. That's really the tale of how a Victorian woman helped herself and other women take what little control they had of their bodies during a time when they could control so little, if anything, in their lives. But my dear, that is a story for another time. Well, my delicious little donut, that is all she wrote. How did you like it? Gosh, I love tattoos. I can't even tell you how much I love them. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I could talk on and on and on and on about this because there's so many different facets of American tattoo history. It's fascinating. I just want to say thank you for turning in to this first episode of 2022. I'm so thankful for you because without you, there would be no this. Thank you so much. If you would like to help For the Love of History grow even more, leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to. And FYI, if you're listening on Spotify, you can review podcast now or you can rate podcast now. You you can't leave a review, but you can you can give me five stars, (laughs) which would be super cool if you did. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, there are links to Patreon and Good Pods in the show notes. All of the proceeds, all of the proceeds go directly back into the podcast to help me make the best content possible for you. And if that's not your thing, simply recommending this episode to a friend is immeasurably supportive. So with that, I will say, take care of yourself, dear one. Give yourself a big old hug if you're a hugger. If not, don't. But do take a big old swig of your water right now because I know that you're dehydrated. Seriously. Do it. Okay, thank you. Be kind to yourself this week. I will see you next week when we talk about Tamar the Great, the badass first queen of Georgia. Ooh, it's been a long time since we had an Empress Batty on the episode. And uh, if you're interested... Sneak on over to Instagram to uh, see a little giveaway that's going on. But anyways, I will see you then, my friend. Bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay.